Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Today is World War II Day, and I am joined with Matt as my co-host today. Matt, tell us who have we got on. Hello, I'm really excited today. We've got David O'Keefe with us, who's a historian, documentarian. He's a professor too, so we've grabbed him out of, out of lectures because we're going to be talking about the Dieppe Raid and the fascinating research that he has uncovered over the last 10 years and 100,000 documents worth of work. David, welcome to the show. Well, thanks a lot for having me, guys. Yeah, so we're, we're really going to dig into this a, a, a little bit because I've got your book One Day in August sitting on my desk and I devoured that during lockdown. You've come up with some very, very fascinating insights for, for us as Canadians actually gives Dieppe a bit of meaning. Yeah, it does. I mean, I think, you know, probably set the stage. I mean, for those of you who have never heard of the Dieppe Raid, I mean, it's huge for Canadians. And of course, you know, Brits generally have heard of it. Um, but for those of you who may be around the world, um, the Dieppe Raid was one of the largest raids put on, amphibious operations and raids put on uh, by British combined operations during the Second World War. And it encompassed a full Canadian, well, almost a full Canadian division, the second Canadian division, plus some army commandos. And at the core of it was the were the Royal Marine Commando, which were there right from the inception of the raid. And of course, one of the reasons why we're still talking about it today is because on August 19th, 1942, that one day in August, um, they suffered close to 70% total casualties of the raiding force. It, that included close to a thousand Allied dead in just six hours. 907 were Canadians that landed, and about another 2,500 ended up in prisoner of war camps. So you can imagine that just that toll, just in six hours, was going to raise some eyebrows, to say the least. And I guess one of the reasons why it's, you know, like I said, we're still talking about it eight decades later, is because there was such a controversy um, over the intent behind the raid. And of course, there were so many different uh, excuses that were given at the time, whether this was to placate the Russians, test German defenses. Sometimes they were, you know, questions of deception and setting up double cross operations. But the point was that for so many years, um, the answer to the, this riddle, and no pun intended, the enigma, um, really, um, you know, laid uh, in a series of classified documents that were only declassified or began to be declassified starting in 1995. 
So, like I said, this is one of the most enduring controversy controversies in Canada and in the Allied world, but also, you know, one of the most enduring mysteries of the Second World War until now. So let's start off with the, the raid itself. High casualty rates, some quite famous names in charge of it, um, one in particular. So mm. who, who was behind it? If, if we start with the raid itself, we can get to what you found yeah. in a moment, because I think sure. understanding what happened on those beaches is is going to be important for the rest of it. Exactly. The idea was supposed to, it was um, planned under the auspices of Lord Louis Mountbatten's Combined Operations Headquarters. Now, Combined Operations Headquarters had started in 1940. They pulled off raids in the Lofoten Islands. They pulled off the famous raid at Saint-Nazaire. There was another one that was aborted at Bayonne. And um, when Lord Louis Mountbatten took over the reins of Combined Operations in uh, fall of 1941, he was much more of an aggressive character than his predecessor, Keyes. And so as a result, um, there was a, a much more aggressive tone uh, that was going on when it came to his planning for the operation. So the whole thing was done under, the, under his command. And um, originally it was cut, um, carved out that the Royal Marine Commandos were going to play the central part. They were there in the outline planning. And then when it came to actually fill out the rest of the operation, he wanted the entire Royal Marine Division to carry it out. But politics got in the way. Um, Canadians had not been involved with the exception of maybe Hong Kong at this point, uh, which was, uh, sadly a very sad and disastrous chapter. Um, you know, for two and a half weeks, they ended up basically retreating against all odds in the Japanese and surrendering on Christmas day of 1941. So the Canadians were chomping at the bit. And of course the Canadians had developed a pretty good reputation coming out of world war one as the shock army of the British empire. And so as a result, the Canadians government started putting pressure on Churchill to allow them to do something. And sure enough, when it came down to, you know, filling out the roster, if you will, that was to take part in the raid on Dieppe, um, the Canadians were tapped on the shoulder and they were more than willing to go. And that's where the Canadian nature of this operation, which in reality is a combined operations operation, a British organization, uh, really, I should say, inter-allied. Um, so that's basically where Canada enters into this. But it all comes down to Lord Louis Mountbatten as the overall commander. And I think it's... It's, it's his position, which I've always found fascinating. And I think most people now just think of him as that guy in the crown. Um, yeah, <laughs> but he, exactly. he, 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 had, he had an interesting career leading up to taking over at, at, com at Combined Ops. Yeah, he did. I mean, he was always a, a very polemic kind of character. I mean, he was, you know, royal bloodlines. Um, some people considered him the upper class twit of the year. Others thought it was much more, there was much more to Dickie Mountbatten. And of course, he rose very quickly. He was a captain of the HMS Kelly, which unfortunately was sunk off of Crete. And then he was being promoted very quickly up through the ranks, even to the point where finally Churchill turned to him and appointed him as the commander of combined operations headquarters, but also made him a member of the chiefs of staff. I mean, this is somebody who in 1941 and 42, his star was rising like a rocket. 
I mean, there was no doubt about it. And so without a doubt, I mean, he was as billed extremely vainglorious without a doubt. Um, he was very much of an empire builder, but there was more to him when it came to the kind of operations, what we would later call pinch operations that combined operations was carrying out. One of the big claims to fame of Mountbatten in a genuine sense in his naval career was that he was the, uh, he wrote the signals intelligence plan for the Mediterranean fleet which a lot of people don't realize that he was much more of a technocrat than anybody had ever realized. And he was nowhere near, despite his vainglorious attitude, nowhere near the upper class twit of the year that a lot of people just kind of fobbed him off as being. So there's much more to Dickie Mountbatten. And of course he had a penchant for empire building. And part of what he was trying to do at combined operations was indeed that build his own personal empire by creating a force, a raiding force that could get their hands on any type of material that, uh, you know, that would please the political masters, if you will. I want to know more about the pinch doctrine because you've just mentioned it moments ago. Yeah. Can you tell us more about it? Well, this is something that remained classified until 2013. Um, the idea was, and you've got to go back, the idea is that they're putting the British Navy in particular are going to put on operations in conjunction with combined operations to support the code-breaking effort at Bletchley Park. This is something that they started in 1940. They were looking for a way of breaking into what was called the three-rotor naval enigma. This is probably something that you saw very famously in um, The Imitation Game. So basically, you have characters like Alan Turing and Dilly Knox who are working on this problem. And with the code-breakers, you need one big a key, one big break to get in. Once you get the first break, it's like a crossword puzzle. Once you get a first clue, then generally speaking, then you can work off of it. But you have to remember that the odds of breaking into a three-rotor naval German Enigma machine in 1940 was 150 million, million, million to one. So basically winning a national lottery every single day for 150 years. Good luck. So you needed captured material to be able for the geniuses at Bletchley Park to be able to do their job in a quicker and much more efficient way. You're at war. You, don't, you can't afford to wait until genius kicks in. You have to speed up the process, which meant you need to get, needed to get your hands on captured material, whether that meant the machine as it was set up, or more importantly, all the cipher aids. In other words, kind of like the instruction manual for a video game. You know, you need to be able to understand how it all works for it to come about. Well, the British did this. And when they developed combined operations, they created what was called a pinch doctrine. Pinch being the British slang term for stealing or capturing. And so the idea was that there were three types. There was a pinch by chance, which meant in the middle of an operation, you stumble across something that looks like a typewriter or associated with this Enigma machine, and therefore you pick it up. There was also a pinch by opportunity, which was, look, there's an operation that's already on, and it's going to bring you into contact with either a naval headquarters or the kind of ships where you expect to capture this. Be ready. And then there was a third type called pinch by design, which was, we have a problem, create an operation and go solve it. And so... 
This is essentially where Dieppe is born. Dieppe then comes at the end of this process that starts in 1940 and starts to mature, if you will, into 1941, where combined operations and naval intelligence are now working hand in glove because they have a problem. Naval intelligence needs to solve this problem because they're getting hammered in the war at sea and signals intelligence is key uh, to defeating the German U-boats. And they need to support, uh, you know, they need to support Bletchley Park. And then you have a very ambitious commander like Lord Louis Mountbatten, who understands what this means to the war effort, but also understands what this means to his burgeoning empire. So this is where things come together. So the, the pinch doctrine then is, and we can break down pinch doctrine, it relies on speed, surprise. It's all about getting to your target quick because the idea is you have to close with your enemy and you have to be able to either kill or incapacitate him quickly so he can't destroy the material you're coming after and then when you do you have to figure out not only a way of infiltrating but you have to figure out a way of exfiltrating in other words getting the material out and even more important to cover it up so in other words, one of the reasons why um, combined operations was the perfect vehicle for this was because they could dress up their raids to appear to be anything. And the interesting part is when you take a look at all the raids that they put on in 1940, uh, 1941 and 42, they all have pinch elements, whether I, by design or by opportunity, all of them. So they became, and they were the only vehicle available to the British to be able at this time, when the British are on the retreat everywhere, to be able to take um, offensive action against the enemy, which is going to bring the kind of material that the Codebreakers need into their hands. So this was an incredibly um, much more complex uh, kind of organization, um, much more, I, you know, sharper edge or cutting edge than we ever expected. And all this was classified until 2013. This was something we didn't really know about. We knew that, you know, they had made captures here and there, but it was always sort of portrayed as, as being incidental, that these were just kind of accidental and incidental, but that wasn't the case. Um, you know, Bletchley Park would tell naval intelligence what they needed. Naval intelligence would find the targets and then they would turn it over to combined operations to execute the missions. And so that's essentially where we get the, the origins of the Dieppe raid. I'm curious to know, um, have there been any successful pinch raids before Dieppe? Yes, as a matter of fact, there were several. Um, the first one where they proved this concept could work was um, in the Lofoten Islands. They went there in March in 1941 and they were able to um, capture material that led to the first break into the three-rotor Enigma. And then they put on a series of other raids, but in a different form. Instead of amphibious operations that landed on an island and hit German naval headquarters or you know um, ships that were corralled in a harbor, they put on a, a whole series, almost 20, smaller operations where they targeted German trawlers, German weather trawlers that carried Enigma-related material out in the North Atlantic. But the problem was that the British, after their first big break, thanks to the first Lafoten pinch, um, started to get a little greedy and they started to push the envelope. And suddenly the Germans realized in the summer of 1941, hey, wait a second, we're, we're losing weather trawlers like crazy and support ships. Like what's going on here? 
And so not everybody was thoroughly convinced in the German high command that the, that the three-rotor naval enigma had been breached. But Karl Donitz was, and Donitz, of course, was the head of the German U-boats. And the Germans had already decided earlier that they were going to create a new version of the Enigma, a more improved one called a four-rotor. So in other words, you add another rotor, or in this case, a half-rotor. And so the, and get this, those 150 million million to one odds now jump when you introduce the new machine to, and I had to look this up being a historian, I didn't know numbers went this high, 92 septillion to one, all right? So million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion, septillion, septillion. How many Amazing. zeros is that? Oh, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot. You'll have, well, the thing is, I saw it actually written out in the document. And I looked at it. And I was, okay, I've never seen anything this, lo this long. So I had to figure out what it was. But it came down to 92 septillion. So you can imagine the importance of captured material that will give you that one break that then will allow the geniuses at Bletchley Park to not only break into the Enigma enciphered material, but then create processes to sustain that break. And that's really what the key is, but you gotta, you gotta get in the door once, you gotta be able to get in. And so that's one of the reasons why they created the pinch operation. So not only do you have the success in, um, in early 1941, but the British decide to go back to the Lofotans at the end of 1941 in December, because now they know the four rotors on the way and they're trying to get their hands on a four rotor. And even though they don't succeed in getting the four rotor, they do get a whole bunch more on the three rotor. So, you know, the Germans are still in the process of being kind of wishy-washy. Do we bring, you know, do we sacrifice all these three rotors and then, you know, uh, you know, uh, embark on a major overhaul of our communications and encipherment network, which is extremely expensive? Or do we just sort of let things play out and see how they go and slowly bring in the four rotor? Well, basically, that's what they tried, but they made a huge change in the U-boat fleet in the Atlantic. So on February 1st, 1942, the Germans bring in the four-rotor Enigma. And as a result, Bletchley Park, which was blacked out in the first few years of the war and couldn't break the codes and ciphers, then suddenly could, as a result of the pinch operations in 1941, now is blacked out again. And the war at sea now, again, it's a, it's a real roller coaster. And now, you know, the war at sea tips into the favor of the Germans once again. And so this is where the genesis of the Dieppe operation comes. And it comes because of a discovery that is made on March 13th, 1942, that the four-rotor, which right now is only being used by U-boats in the Atlantic, which is bad enough, has now been distributed, although not operational, it's been distributed to ships in the English Channel, which means that this cancer is not, um, you know, simply located in the U-boats in the Atlantic. This cancer of the four-rotor is spreading. So now there is a renewed impetus to get on with it. So, you know, very long way of answering your question. Yes, there were successes. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons why we talk about Alan Turing today is because of the early successes of those, you know, pinch operations which gave him the tools and the leg up to do the amazing things he did. So we've, we've got this interesting situation in early 1942 of this growing panic of being blacked out again. Churchill's not getting his box with 
ultra messages that he can read over breakfast. Um, but in combined ops, what was the attitude there? Because it wasn't necessarily panic, was it? No, I, I would argue that they saw this as an opportunity. I mean, one thing that you see in the planning is that there's never anything that's really negative coming out of there. As a matter of fact, um, as I've argued in the book, there's a, a mounting victory disease and a hubris. Um, in other words, that they've been successful before. So, you know, nothing has gone wrong. We haven't had any major casualties. The, you know, the pinch doctrine is developing as much as we can see. And we're, you know, we're, we're pushing it and we're making it bigger and we're becoming perhaps a bit greedier. Um, but there is, without a doubt, a mounting hubris. And of course, you know, some of Mountbatten's detractors have, have taken a look at combined operation and said, look, nothing more than a bunch of amateur enthusiasts. And the way they approach their planning in some ways, it, that's justifiable because the pinch doctrine kind of goes against typical um, uh, tactical common sense, simply because the, the pinch doctrine relies on surprise to a degree that most operations don't. In other words, you love to have surprise, but it's not necessarily primordial to your entire game plan. Whereas with pinch doctrine, it is because the idea is you want to reduce the amount of time that the enemy knows that you're onto them because the standard operating procedure, of course, is if a headquarter is going to fall or if a ship is going to you know, be captured is to destroy all sensitive material, including cipher documents. So the, the way that they were looking at it was all tactical common sense was now being subordinated or subordinate to, um, to surprise, to achieving surprise at all costs. And that you can see through the entire planning operation of Dieppe, whether it's the air power, the, the allocation of forces selected, the paring down, how they call the shots on the day, how they designed the approach. Um, so many things are, you know, fall in line with pinch doctrine and, you know, how they were doing it at this time. This, when I was reading your book and, you know, and watching you on our good friend Woody's World War II TV as well, growing up in Canada, Dieppe has always been this, this strange thing that, you know, the reasons given for it were you know, attempting to take and hold a port. It was a vital stepping stone to D-Day. You know, it was a less worse op opportunity than, say, Sledgehammer, which is taking the the, the yeah. Shepherd Peninsula, which yeah. is my favorite mad operation of, of Second World War. But this there were others. <laughs> oh yeah. There were others. But this really does give it a reason, which I think is it's eye-opening. So what is the point of the pinch in Dieppe? Where are they going? What are they okay. what are they gonna what are they gonna get after? And we shall bring in another character in a minute and we'll get sure. to ask about him. Yes. Um, okay, essentially what they're doing is they are going after what is called the outer port. The outer port of Dieppe. There's an inner and an outer, and the outer port is the operational port where you have the shipping that goes in. And on a regular basis at Dieppe, you can find everything from small craft up to sizable torpedo boats. And of course, when I say torpedo boats in the German Navy, it's not the torpedo boats we know from, you know, the Americans PT-109. These are, they look like frigates or destroyers. They're, they're massive. The key is that almost all of the vessels that use Dieppe on a regular basis employ the Enigma machine. And that's one thing that, you know, unlike the Army and the Air Force, where it remained at higher headquarters, almost every single vessel had an Enigma or material 
um, like res reserve hand ciphers and things like that, that would operate with them. So they, um, the code breakers, if they got their hands on these, even if it wasn't directly Enigma related, would be able to get enough material from the lower level codes that would be able to give them cribs to, to jump in. So not only do you have the, the cipher material available on the ships in the harbor, which are now corralled, you're not chasing them around the North Atlantic, they're there. You also have a supply, communication supply depot. A lot of people don't realize that Dieppe was the only one for communication supply in that part of the channel. There was one, I think, in uh, on the West Coast, but this is the only one there. And then there's another location, a naval headquarters in the harbor. And this was, uh, according to British intelligence, situated in what was called the Hotel Modern. Um, they weren't exactly sure where it was. They um, actually, uh, they issued a report saying that it's in one of two buildings that are side by side. And their alternate target was actually the Hotel Modern. They misidentified Les Arcades Hotel as the Hotel Modern. But in their assessment, they said, like, don't worry, if it's not this one, it'll be 30 feet across the street. So they decided that these were essentially the main targets. So the ships in the harbor, the supply depot, and of course, the, the, uh, what they suspected was naval headquarters situated in the Hotel Modern. The idea being, you get in, you are able to not only grab material on the ships that would give you an idea of how the Enigma was going to be used for the current month, and maybe the next month, because all the cipher tables were issued every month, kind of like getting new instructions every month for a video game on how to play it. Well, this would be the same thing. And they usually stock the current month and the, the upcoming month. But the key was the supply and the headquarters facilities. They were considered to be the gold mine because usually what happened was when the cipher tables were, were printed, they were then distributed for months on end to supply and headquarters facilities where they were stockpiled and then distributed monthly. So the idea was that you're coming in with series of layers for pinch tar targets. You can get the stuff that will be of immediate use on the ships that are in the port. And then if you can successfully get into Naval Headquarters or the Supply Depot, get the material, get out and cover it up, then you may have literally the gold mine. You will have enough material that will allow you to break into Enigma for months on end down the line. But more importantly, and I mentioned this before, give the um, uh, code breakers at Bletchley the material to develop the intellectual approach and processes that would, you know, uh, kind of wean them off the need for captured material. And they'd be able to create things like the world's first computer, which eventually they did, although that was not for Enigma, that was a different purpose. But, you know, things like what the Polish call the bomba. They were the ones that came up with this idea of creating an electrical mechanical machine. Turing essentially takes it from them and creates his own. And that was used to try to break the Enigma. In other words, an electrical mechanical counting machine. But to speed that up, you would have to use captured material. So, you know, you could see from their perspective, the potential gold mine that something like Dieppe, you know, a port like Dieppe had to offer. And it was confined. It was small. Nobody could run away. And that was one of the keys with the, with the pinch doctrine. They liked to raid shore facilities because naval shore facilities weren't mobile. Um, unlike, you know, Army and Air Force, which could move at a, at a you know, at, at a heartbeat. You know, the, you were stuck with the naval 
situation. So that's what DF has to offer in the port. Matt, if I say to you, James Bond, what would you say to me? They haven't made a good Bond movie in ages. Um, but in the context of Dieppe, it's his creator, Ian Fleming, who's always been this weird peripheral character in the stories of Dieppe. But with when we add Pinch Doctrine to this, he starts coming front and center, doesn't he? Oh, does he ever? And that's the key. And you have to realize that when I made my first discovery back in 1995, um, it was one of the brand new, formerly ultra classified documents that was released in 1995. And it was a potted history of Fleming's creation, which was the intelligence, Naval Intelligence Assault Unit, which would go on to be 30 Commando or 30th Assault Unit. And uh, that's how my whole journey started because I got this four page report and I thought, wow, this is fascinating and I'll read it. And then, you know, I'm going through it because I was doing some stuff for the Navy, uh, Royal Canadian Navy here on, on um, ultra and signals intelligence. And in the fourth paragraph, here's this throwaway line. The party at Dieppe did not reach its target. And I thought, oh my God, in the entire historiography of Dieppe, we didn't know that there was anything connected with Ultra, let alone Enigma. And, you know, it shows what they were going after. They were going after anything and everything to do with the four rotor at this time, the four rotor Enigma machine. And right there in a quick little throwaway line, it was very simple. It was just, there's the first connection that we have to one of the greatest secrets of the Second World War and to Dieppe. And it's a hard, direct connection. And then later on in the same document, there was another one which was shocking. And at first I balked and I thought, no, this isn't possible. And they said, no operation for pinch purposes should ever be laid on unless it's big enough to presuppose normal operational objects or objectives. And I'm thinking, wait a second here. Am I reading what I'm really reading here? In other words, that they would actually put on a large scale operation for something like this. In other words, to blind the enemy. Well, that's exactly what they were doing. As ridiculous as that sounds, you know, in hindsight. And as you mentioned, the man who was responsible for creating this intelligence assault unit and he was instrumental in developing pinch doctrine was Ian Fleming the creator of, you know, later on, the creator of James Bond. And, you know, you can imagine it, you know, as soon as I realized that Fleming was attached to it, I thought, oh my God, what minefield did I just step into? Because, you know, there, there's so much BS out there about Ian Fleming and his role during the war. And so the first thing that I had to do in this book was really come to terms with who the legitimate Ian Fleming was circa 1939 to 42. And so it took a while because most of the stuff that Fleming did was highly classified. Um, he was not James Bond. He was not out in the field per se. Um, but I noticed that there was a trend amongst not so much, well, the British government perhaps, but some, some historians who are known to be mouthpieces, unofficial mouthpieces for, the, for British intelligence, was that they were going out of their way to dampen and poo-poo anything that Fleming had done during the war. And I thought, well, wait a second here, you know, the, he's such a polarized character. And I said, I had to get down to the, to the, you know, to the heart of the matter. And I did. And I spent, you know, my entire, I think it's second chapter in the book is devoted to him to figure out what his real role is. But so essentially 
He was not James Bond, but he's not a faceless bureaucrat either. As a matter of fact, he was the assistant, personal assistant, to the Director of Naval Intelligence, Admiral John Godfrey. And Admiral John Godfrey, like, like Mountbatten, was an empire builder. Um, not happy that naval intelligence did not have control over all the intelligence you know, spectrum as it did in World War I. It had given up stuff to MI5 and MI6 and GCHQ or GCCS at the time. And he was interested in getting stuff back. But what he liked about Fleming was Fleming was not regular Navy. He was a, um, you know, he was a stockbroker. He was a journalist. Some have suggested he was working for Signal, uh, uh, Secret Intelligence MI6 before. That's never been proven. But he had a very creative Machiavellian mind. And he ended up taking on a role of essentially uh, high-powered liaison officers, probably about the best way of putting it, where he had an incredible amount of uh, portfolios. So... He dealt with, for instance, MI5, MI6, Bletchley Park on a regular basis. He dealt with um, the pr uh, political warfare executive, SOE, uh, Ministry of Economic Warfare, Inner Services Topogra Topographical Department. He was even on the Joint Intelligence Committee. Okay, so he was the representative of the Joint Intelligence Committee, which is fascinating, which means he was much more important than we ever expected. Um, and then also he had his foreign uh, portfolios where he liaised with the FBI, the OSS, and naval intelligence in the United States. So as Godfrey himself says in his memoirs, um, uh, Fleming knew just enough about everything to be dangerous. And that was the key. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, Fleming has been portrayed perhaps the way he's been portrayed for so many years. Uh, part of it is self-inflicted by creating bond and drawing attention to himself. But I think part of it is also a concerted effort to try to deflect attention and to, to rob him of any of his integrity, just so people aren't going to continue to look into him. Um, because he's really a hub. He's an intelligence hub. And once you start looking into Fleming, and of course, Fleming's big portfolio, amongst all of those, was liaisoning with uh, Bletchley Park and developing Pinch Doctrine. And so he ends up being instrumental in not only all the other Pinch operations, uh, but also in Dieppe, particularly with creating or carving out his intelligence assault unit from the Royal Marine Commandos, which are at the heart of the operation right from the beginning. So... Right from the start, Fleming has got his fingerprints over everything or, or the pinch component of the entire operation. So what does Fleming's commando do on the raid? Well, they are tasked. They are carved out of the 350-man-strong Royal Marine Commandos, and they are given the starring role. Um, essentially, what they're supposed to do is work in cooperation, and this is the fascinating part, work in cooperation with uh, the Canadian infantry, engineers, and the tanks, the Calgary tanks. A lot of people don't realize that this is the reason why the tanks were on the raid. They were there to provide the fire support for the pinch operation in the port. Um, and so the Royal Marines are going to come in in two strike groups. They are going to come in on the back of HMS Locust, which is a river gunboat designed for you know policing the Yangtze River. Um, but because it's flat-bottomed, they figure it would be a perfect vessel that will be able to barrel down the inner channel of Dieppe Harbor and kind of, you know, 
take the harbor on the run. Um, of course, it's bristling with with uh, you know weapons. It's got four inch guns, and the you know the Royal Marines. There's 150 Royal Marines on on the top of it on its deck, all armed to the teeth. They've retrofitted their you know their uh, their mortars on top, and the orders are given that basically as the Canadians hit the beach and they're they're moving in towards the the port to basically suppress German opposition in the port that the HMS Locust is going to come barreling down, uh, come hell or high water, um, they're going to come barreling down into the, the port. Uh, all guns blazing if necessary. And, uh, I mean, it's boys' own stuff, just like St. Nazaire. And um, they're going to berth at the center island of the harbor, and then they're going to spring out, and they're going to pull off the pinch uh, in cooperation with the Canadians who have already suppressed German, uh, or hopefully, have suppressed German opposition in the harbor, they're actually going to get in and they're going to scoop up the material necessary. And the interesting part was that there was another code word and you can't make this up. I mean, this comes, I mean, when I read this, I almost, I started laughing because you know, I'm sitting in the archives. I'm like, this is right out of bond. The, there was a special code word and a special um, uh, set of instructions given to everyone in the Dieppe raid that if any Royal Marine officer or NCO uses the code name Bullion, okay, you can't make that up, Bullion, they are to be given instant passage out of the harbor by any means necessary, regardless of what is happening in the raid at that time. They get express exit from the harbor because they have a special package that has to be returned. That's essentially what it was. They also put on a ship, a small, uh, a small. Uh, uh, I guess it's kind of like a small British torpedo boat, to come in and pick up the commandos, the British commandos, Fleming's intelligence assault unit, um, when they've actually made the pinch. So not only do you see in the plans the infiltration route to get in, but more importantly, you see the exfiltration route. In other words, they're building in a pipeline to get the material out right in the middle of the battle wall. All, you know, everything is hitting the fan. And the idea is to take this back to the command ship. One of the, there's two command ships and the backup command ship, because on the backup command ship for one of the only times in his career, there's Ian Fleming waiting for the material. And so Fleming you know, understanding the, the, the potential of showing up with essentially what would be the Holy Grail at that time. In other words, any material that would break this blackout that's been going on for six months and has been taking such an incredible toll. Um, if anybody could bring that back, that is going to sit well with the prime minister and the chiefs of staff. And, you know, if you're interested in empire building, oh boy, there's a pillar for you. Um, so the idea is that he is going to break off. He is going to get the material from his commando and he will break off in the middle of the battle. And that comes out in his report that was written. And he's going to go directly to the nearest British port. Doesn't matter which one it is, just the most direct way to get there the quickest. So essentially at the end of the day, not only is Fleming right there from the inception of the in the pinch, but he also positions himself as the anchor man of the relay to get it home. So as you can see, there is much more and much more from a legitimate perspective about Ian Fleming in connection with the Dieppe rate than we ever expected before. 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. So when when we start looking at the attack itself and we throw in this mm-hmm. the pinch HMS locus, yeah. it does actually start to make the tactics make a little bit more sense because you would think taking a port you'd want to take the flanks and then work your way around it, but it's it is a frontal assault on mm-hmm. a port that's surrounded by cliffs that have lots and lots and lots of guns in them. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's not the most inviting thing, um, without a doubt. I mean, if you've ever been there, and I'm sure you have, and you've stood off and you look up the cliffs and you go, what the hell were they thinking? Um, and it's, you're right. I mean, it's, it's there's really, a lot of things that have been, you know, have been big mysteries. You know, why wasn't there a battleship? Why wasn't there a cruiser? Well, very simply, um, they didn't want any kind of vessel that was involved in the operation that would draw the attention of German intelligence. So for instance, originally uh, when they were planning it, they considered bringing in what were called Eagle ships. These were anti-aircraft vessels that usually patrolled the Thames estuary. And they wanted to have them come in because they thought they could be useful with getting into the port, getting out. And then they scrubbed them uh, because they said, look, if we take any vessels away from their normal operating areas or of a type that would not normally prowl the channel, we're going to light up German intelligence and reconnaissance, and they're going to be on to us in a heartbeat. So the idea was that even the composite, um, you know, the composition of the raiding force right from the start was all about using ships that were normally seen plying the English channel. Okay. And then, you know, the ones that, you know, like troop ships that may not necessarily be seen would only leave port under the cloak of darkness and move across. Um, bombing. Another one of the big reasons, um, you know, there was, there was a lot of criticism. Well, you know, why didn't you use heavy bombers and just, you know, obliterate, um, you know, the town? Well, uh, part of this has to do with the intricacies of the plan, which called for the tanks, as I mentioned before, to land on the beach, get off the beach, go across the promenade and get through the tiny little streets of the town with the help to get into the port. And if you see Dieppe, you will notice there's a beach, a promenade, there's a built up area, and then it gets into the port. And you have to be able to get your tanks through these tiny little streets. All these streets are roadblocked. So you have engineers which are going to work with the tanks to blow these roadblocks. Problem is, if you start bringing in heavy bombers that are not accurate, you are going to do a lot of damage to Dieppe, which includes rubbling the streets that you're trying to get through. So in other words, you're going to create your own roadblocks. And also, too, what they learned at St. Nazaire was if you bring in heavy bombers, 
or use airborne like they originally thought they were going to do on the flanks, you're going to light up the German defenses and surprise is going to be gone. So you will notice that as the planning evolves, it is tightened and honed to then, you know, bring out what our Churchill would call all the essential features and all the essential features are everything to do with the pinch. So that was one of the big things when I was doing this was just to see how pinch doctrine and what actually happened with the planning and the execution matched up perfectly. Like everything just fell into place. There were no leaps of faith. There was no convenient cutting of corners. You could just see how it all works. And that's the amazing part. And, you know, that's what I've attempted to bring across in the book. And I, I think I've been able to do it. So I'm sold. <laughs> Going through it, it, your book very much focuses on the pinch and the research that you've done around that. Mm. The, the bits that you bring out as well, which I, I found fascinating as well, is that important reminder that the type of tanks that were used. They're Churchill's, which are heavy infantry tanks. They're not, you know, your good old fashioned tank that's there to blow up. It's not tank. Of- yeah. It's not tank on tank combat. I mean, this is infantry, you know, infantry support. And the idea was that they were expecting to, f- to find ships in the Harbor that were going to be crewed, manned and filled with deck guns. And so the idea was not only do you use the firepower of the Locust, HMS Locust, but you also use the firepower of 18 tanks in the harbor, which is a considerable punch when you think about it, you know, particularly taking on, you know, crews. And it's amazing to see that all of this is in the files. It's in the planning papers. It's, it's all there. The problem is, is I think historians in the past have probably gone over it, but never understood the significance Because unless you know what trawlers have to offer, right, the ships in the port, and why it's so important about the Hotel Modern, and if you don't know about Bletchley, none of this really makes sense. It looks very strange. But then when you figure out how, you know, um, code breaking is done at this particular point, how signals intelligence is, the stakes, and, and the fact that there's a developing doctrine, oh my God, everything just falls into place. So also on the Dieppe Raid, we've got, it would be remiss of me not to mention, the first major operations by the Typhoons. The Duxford Wing flying fighter cover, in what it was originally designed for. But it's, it's a day of first, really, for the, the air power over Dieppe, isn't it, David? Well, in many cases it is. I mean, what, the, the way they were working it into Dieppe was really not a question of obliteration. Like, in other words, if you brought in the heavy bombers to saturate the area. In this case, it really was a ground support, not in the sense of tank busting, but to time it and coordinate the air attack right when the first boots are about to hit. So the idea is, as I mentioned in the book, it's kind of like a 1942 version of shock and awe, that term that we would use today, where you use tactical air power. So in this case, you have cannon firing hurricanes um, that are fulfilling that ground attack role, who are going to come in, they're going to strafe positions on the beach, strafe positions on the headlands, basically to create some sort of suppressive style of firepower, if you will. Just enough to be able to, you know, blind and bewilder the German defenders and catch them off guard. And that's really what it was. So it wasn't a question of destructive firepower. But I mean, you're talking about your typhoons and, uh, you know, the typhoons were not, as far as I know, and you, you know, you would know better than me, as far as I know, they were just flying standard covering air protection. In other words, cap at this time as normal Mm -hmm. fighters. 
and it would be what 43 before they were rigged for ground attack purposes with rockets and yeah you know, there was they were still figuring it out you know it's yeah one of the reasons they threw it in is because it had the legs to stay over Dieppe longer than than spitfires sure. and hurricanes did but you know the problem with it was it, it had only been in service for about four or five months and there was still plen- plenty of issues with it they were working out yeah they were um, teething now the interesting part is you know from a counterfactual perspective i mean we always take a look at the plan and how integral the uh, engineers were and, you know, one of the, I would argue, the genuine lessons, although they were not there to learn lessons, <laughs> but you can learn lessons out of everything, was the need for specialized armored engineer vehicles because the failure to the entire operation comes down to the poor engineers getting gunned down on the beach and not being able to blow the roadblocks for the tanks to get into the harbor. And so, you know, they create those. So, you know, one of the great counterfactuals is what if they had those tanks? What if they had Hobart's funnies? At the end, it likely would have succeeded. Well, perhaps we can make the same argument for rocket firing typhoons. Because if, you know, if they're instead of using cannon firing hurricanes, if you're bringing in rocket firing typhoons, I'm not necessarily sure about the accuracy of them. But remember that if you're coming in at an oblique angle, you could take on the, the caves that have been cut into the cliffs. In theory, you could by firing rockets straight at them, which is, you know, something that was a a huge thorn in the planner's side, because as the locust was going to run the gauntlet, they had to worry about, you know, I think it's 12 or 14 caves all armed with or or manned by either machine guns or anti-tank weapons or, you know, French 75s, you know, so there was a distinct amount of firepower that was in what I would call the gauntlet. So, you know, that may have changed the fate on the day if you actually had a, um, an aircraft that is able to come in and deliver, you know, rocket firing attacks that would go direct at these areas. Or conversely, a, a plane like, you know, the, the t- uh, Typhoon that can carry a thousand pound bomb load. That would really have helped taking out the guns on the flanks or even on the top of the uh, top of the cliffs on each side, you know? It would have been a, a considerable amount of tactical firepower, more than they had available in 42. This is this period where the tactical air power is completely changing. And we had uh, Mike Bechtold on a little while ago talking about yep. Bardia, which was, you know, so six, 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 eight months before. This yep. is this is where the use of ground attack aircraft is really, really changing. And it is just that bit too early for Dieppe for it to be truly useful. Yeah, and, and the interesting part is, and that's the sad part, because it became so integral to that process. I mean, the reason why they're trying the, you know, the, I mean, the reason they want the frontal assault is because it's the shortest distance between A and B. I mean, you go in over Main Beach, particularly Red Beach, and you've got the Hotel Modern, you've got the the trawlers right there. You know, there's no frigging about, there's no kidding. You know, you're going right after it. But, you know, they they put the faith of that into the hands of rock, of uh, cannon firing hurricanes, but they don't pack the kind of punch that a typhoon would, you know? And it's not a question of obliterating your enemy, but stunning him dramatically. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it's that keep, keeping their heads down so they can't do what they're supposed yep. to be doing. Suppressive. Yeah, yeah massive suppressive. And something that was going to be long lasting and, you know, a plane coming in and and firing its cannons and strafing is uh, nowhere near something that's coming in and littering the, you know, littering the beach with rocket fire, you know, cannon fire. And of course, if necessary, dropping a thousand pounder or a couple of five hundreds. 
even a typhoon can hit a cliff with a rocket. Hopefully. Yeah, yeah definitely would hope so. Just not a tank in Normandy, right? No. But uh, that's, that's another thing. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> Mike and I have a lot of fun about that. He always throws that at me. My favorite book on, on Dieppe up to this was uh, Robert Nealon's book. Oh, God, which I is, know. Which is fantastic. And putting the two together, and I know you've said it a few times, you can see he was on, on the trail. I know. I, one, of my, one of my greatest regrets, sadly, is that Robin passed away before I got a chance to speak to him. Because as my research was unfolding, I picked up his book kind of late, to be honest with you. It was one of the last ones, and I was just blown away. And I realized, and I've said this before, he's like the blind dog in a meat house. He can smell it. He can't find it. And I remember when I was at the uh, Naval Historical Branch in, in Portsmouth that I was laying out this thesis and there was a Royal Marine Colonel uh, who was there, one of the historians. And he just looked at me and he said, yeah, you're onto something here. There's no doubt about it. And he kind of came from the same cloth that off only if Robin, did, you know, Robin was around to see this because there was discoveries I made that Robin, no historian had ever seen before, you know, the operational orders, which nobody knew existed. Um, you know, they existed at one point, but everybody thought they were destroyed or lost. Um, I stumbled across those literally stumbled across them in a miscellaneous file in the PRO and, you know, the coordinating operations and things like that. And, you know, I, I would have loved to have been able to sit down with him, you know, without a doubt. I wish, you know, so hopefully, hopefully if there's another world, he knows. <laughs> I think just to, to run, run with that as well. I think one of the most touching bits in your book is, uh, Ron Beale. Um, oh yeah. Do, do you want to just tell us a little bit about him? I yeah. Don't, I, I don't think it's going to spoil the book too much because it's, it's lovely. Oh, but no. I, I'd, I'd love to chat to you about Ron because he sounds like he was a lovely man. He was actually, Ron was fascinating. I mean, Ron was very typical of all the Canadian soldiers that took part. I mean, he was 19 years old and you know, vast majority of Canadians were between 19 and 25 who took part in the raid. Um, he had joined up 1939, 1940, raring to get at him, as he would say. Uh, and a lot of them. And, uh, you know, after two years, they were kind of tired. They had arrived in England in 1940 and they hadn't really done much except train and train and train. And you can only do that for so long. Um, and, um, so they were quite excited when, and they went on this raid. It was absolutely amazing. And he was part of the Royal Regiment of Canada, which is from Toronto. And they were designated with landing outside of Dieppe, not on the main beach proper, but outside of the place called Puy, which would go down in history as Blue Beach. Well, by the time he got off his landing craft in the third wave, Blue Beach was now crimson with blood. And he ended up sprinting in under fire, you know, passing what was left of his buddies on the beach and their body parts everywhere and men bobbing up in the surf. And he actually miraculously made it onto the beach and then quickly under the cliffs. And if you've ever been to Dieppe, you know that the cliffs are, they're like Dover, right? They're just incredible. Um, he was able to tuck himself in with a handful of other men from the Royal Regiment under the cliffs, which was the only area on the beach that had a modicum of safety and shelter. Well, he sat there for a couple of hours watching what was left of his men, you know, his buddies be ripped apart, you know, by German machine gun fire, mortar fire, which was coming in. And then the Germans even above were, you know, standing, you know, 60, 70 feet above on a cliff, you know, just dropping grenades down on them. Um, you know, that's how horrible it was. And then he was taken prisoner and he spent the next two and a half years in a prisoner of war camp. And then finally, you know, December of 1944 comes and he's marched halfway across Europe from Poland all the way into Western Germany during the forced march. And then he finally comes home 
And the interesting part was, and I, I say this in the book, is the men who were taken at Dieppe, the second Canadian division, they were all from second Canadian division, was destroyed, completely destroyed with the exception of a couple of units. And all these units rebuilt. So basically when he comes home, you're supposed to walk into a mess and a regiment is a family and you're supposed to know people and know faces. He knew nobody when he got back because these units had rebuilt they had gone off, fought in Normandy, fought in Belgium, liberated France, liberated Belgium, liberated Holland, you know, defeated Nazi Germany. They had the Band of Brothers stories from all their experiences. The Dieppe guys didn't. The Dieppe guys were, you, you, your war was five hours, and then you were in a prisoner of war camp. So a lot of times the Dieppe um, veterans felt like outliers. And so they created their own Dieppe Association, which is interesting, a Dieppe Veterans Association. And Ron was one of the past presidents. So here's a guy who had spent his entire adult life when he got back trying to come to terms with what Dieppe was all about. So he was on the roster of one of several Dieppe veterans that we were interviewing for a documentary, which we did on this called Dieppe Uncovered, which viewed, uh, I guess it was 2012, it debuted in uh, Canada, well, around the world and the UK. And uh, so we sat down and we interviewed him. And it, you can imagine it was the typical thing. Well, you know, I'm not really sure why we were there. You know, it's, uh, you know, I don't know why my friends died. It was, you know, it was horrible. It was, you know, one, it, so the typical interview. We finished the interview and we were leaving and it was my production partner, Wayne Abbott, who said to me, he said, uh, are you going to tell him? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, tell him about your research. You got to tell him. The man's 92. Tell him. And I said, well, you know, come on. I'm a historian. Historians don't usually do this. You know, we write a book and then it comes out in the book and, you know, and he said, look, he's 92. You got to tell him. He may not be around when the book comes out or the documentary. I said, okay, fine. So we did. And we sat down for an incredible three hours with him. It was the most three, three and a half hours. And we took him through the best of the best. I mean, you know, by this time I had gone 15 years of research, 150,000 pages of material. Um, so we took, took him through the best of the best, what, you know, we call the Gretzky files. Um, you know, so about 500 pages of stuff. And we just sat down and I said, here you go. And here you go. And here you go. And the amazing part was you could just see everything going clink, 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 clink into place in his mind, because everything, as I mentioned, just made sense, you know? And again, no leaps of faith, no convenient cut, corners cut, just here you go, here you go, here you go. Here's the black and white evidence. Here are the operational orders. Here's the coordinating meeting. Here's what they were after. Here's, and so finally he just said, I'm shocked. And then we thought, okay, would you be interested in, you know, doing another interview? And he said, yeah, 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 yeah. Let, let's roll. So we did. And he just, and you can see it at the end of the documentary and you can read a bit about it in the book. I go into more detail in the book about it, but he said, uh, he said, look, he said, it doesn't matter whether we didn't get what we were after. Um, he said, that's not really the point. The point is at least I know there was something there. There was something tangible. And then he says, he said, well, he said, now I know what my friends died for and I can die in peace. And you can imagine as a historian, that's not something you hear every day. And it was extremely powerful. One of the, by, all, by far the most powerful moment in my professional career and one of the most powerful in my personal life. But it also sent shockwaves through me because I thought, oh my God, I better you know, cross my T's and dot my eyes on the research. You got, you got to nail this. I got to nail this because the power that this has on the people who were there. 
And yeah, I saw this. I saw this not only with the people who were there, but also with the country. Because, you know, this has hung around Canadians' necks like an albatross ever since 1942. And it's not so much whether it was a success or a failure. It was what was the reason, what was the raison d'etre? And although, you know, at the end of the day, I said, look, you know, even though the intent behind the raid may have been altruistic and made perfect sense with what was happening in the context of the time and was absolutely essential doesn't change the grisly fact that a thousand men die in six, you know, six hours and nothing is ever going to change that. But just that moment of genuine truth of being finally the cathartic release that he had, you know, sitting there and just going, Oh my God, yes, this is what it is. And not just because yes, I want it to be this, but yes, this makes sense. The evidence shows this. And that's the key because there was always a, a risk of, you know, pushing it into the realm of over-rationalization or rationalization for the sake of it. And that was the danger, you know, kind of like dealing with characters like Fleming, there's always a, a double-edged sword. And so that was something that I was mindful about. But like I said, I had to go back and make sure that I crossed my T's and dotted my I's. Most powerful moment. And, and the moment when I realized just how powerful history is. You can sort of feel that coming across, um, especially in the pages of the book, because that's the sort of the bit that you end on. Spoiler, everybody. Still buy the book. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> you've come up against many, many years of perceived wisdom. Oh, yeah. So your viewpoint has been challenged a few times. How, how has that sort of reacted to that? I, or if you just let, okay. it, let it get out there and let someone else run with it now? Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, <laughs> I don't think it's ever been properly challenged, okay? And I would appreciate a genuine challenge. What I have received at times has been just a dismissive or an arrogant dismissiveness um, based on the fact that, and it's funny because I've spoken to some of my other buddies who are, who are Dieppe scholars, and they've just said, yeah, it's Dieppe, like some other things like Pearl Harbor and whatever else, um, have the, the whiff of conspiracy behind them. So when anybody opens their mouth and says, boom, here's the reason we found it, here's the key, there is going to be a natural knee-jerk skepticism. But I think over the years, skepticism has turned into cynicism where Dieppe will never, will never figure it out. Nothing will ever be the answer for it. And that's been the toughest part because here we are. I mean, I, I made the, the public announcement of this and provided the, you know, the background material and the evidence almost a decade ago. And, you know, I, I'm still sitting here you know, writing one article after another and doing interviews going, no, it wasn't to placate the Russians. No, it wasn't to test, you know, and it's, it's, it's amazing to see how some people just cling to the idea of the old comfortable slippers when it comes to the interpretation of any historical event, not just the app. And, you know, it's, it's, it's tough, but I mean, the way I do it is, you know, I, I've laid it out. There's 150,000 pages of material that I've gone through. I let the evidence do the talking. And I guarantee you that if it was something else that would have been driving the raid, we'd be talking about that because I'm not going to go through 15 years and 150,000 pages, whatever it is, we're going to be talking about it. If there's an answer unequivocally, this is the answer. So without a doubt, and, and kind of, you know, touch on the second part of your question, um, I do mention this in the book. In other words, as much as I love Dieppe, I wouldn't mind just 
passing the torch. <laughs> In other words, I think what the research has done is it closed so many of the old doors on Dieppe, but it's opened so many new ones, you know, like looking into combined operations. In other words, my God, we've never really understood that combined operations was anything more than a PR stunt. Well, <laughs> no, there's much more there, you know? So that's just one big example. And, uh, and it also raises bigger questions, more philosophical questions on history, the nature of history, the nature of revisionist history, you know, and, and how we create myths and legends and why we do and why we're so comfortable, if you will, with talking about Dieppe and the way we do when there is no evidence to support any of the connections, you know, contentions that we've had for all these years. That was the amazing part because I had to go back and look at all the other possibilities and, and test them. And there's, they don't hold water. And so, you know, this is the problem. So I, I find that fascinating. And, and sometimes it gets frustrating, you know, when people just automatically will shut down. And, you know, my view is, look, read the book, see the evidence yourself. And, you know, based on the evidence, if you want to challenge it, please, because that's the way history works, right? But please make it evidentiary based. You know, don't just, you know, be dismissive and arrogant and pull something out of your butt. I mean, do your homework and by all means, because, hey, if this isn't it, then I'm still committed to finding whatever the truth may be. But with that said, with all the work and the years and everything, this is it. <laughs> so <laughs> there you go. Which, you know, it's, it's, you know, for, for me, having grown up with that traditional narrative, you know, through school the, as, as a youngster in Canada before being dragged to England, it's eye-opening, it's, it's refreshing, because just if you were to take the, we, we talk about casualties a lot when we, we talk about the Second World War, but this is, this is dead. This isn't, this isn't your traditional dead end wounded. This is no. a huge proportion that yeah. were killed on those beaches, and it's been pretty flaky reasoning for, for 80 years. It has. I mean, the interesting part, too, with the doctrine, and I guess this is one of the big eye-opening uh, eye-openers, was that according to Godfrey, um, you know, if, if the targets were deemed to be A1 in category, which anything to do with Enigma was, that justified taking heavy casualties. Now, with that said, I don't think they ever expected to take casualties at this rate. You know, so there is, you know, some of the criticism about, you know, underestimating the enemy is without a doubt true. In other words, they, they, they didn't miscount. They knew, you know, they had pretty good intelligence as to what was there. But, you know, kind of like going into a, you know, a soccer match in a European Cup event where you don't normally see the opponent. You don't know what you're getting into. You're relying on scouting reports. And those scouting reports may not necessarily be dialed in at the right level. So you get a huge shock when you realize that, you know, the kids you're playing are not supposed to be that good and they're wonderful. And, you know, it's the same thing with the Germans. And even though they were considered to be, you know, second tier, if you will, because they were on the West, you know, on the Channel Coast and they weren't fighting in Russia, it's still the German army of 1942, you know? And to put it in Canadian terms, you may not have Wayne Gretzky, but you do have Marc Messier. <laughs> so, and for a, those of you out there who don't know Mark Messi, he was a pretty damn good hockey player. Yeah, so there I'm, you go. I'm, a, I'm a Calgary Flames fan. We we were happy when Gretzky left. Then I, Messi was I'm still really there. Sorry, I'm really sorry <laughs> about that analogy. Then, uh, yeah, that's that's bringing up some demons deep down in my yes, soul. I can imagine. Right, Dave. This has been fantastic. 
if you're allowed to say what what is what is your post dep life doing now? Could we have post dep life? Wow, yeah, getting back to normal. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, I had another book that just came out last year, all about the uh, the Black Watch of Canada, and uh, it's called Seven Days in Hell, and it's about truly a, a week in hell. It's their initiation in battle in Normandy uh, in 1944, which um, I guess is a bit of a theme. Leads up to a, another disaster in Canadian military history, which is second only to Dieppe, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, which is Operation Spring in July of 1944. So I've been kind of doing the rounds with that as well. Um, but I'm working on a new book, which um, I can tell you a little bit about it, but I can't tell you a lot because it is a Just mystery. give us that little teaser. Oh, I will. It's all about an Anglo-Canadian RAF Bomber Command crew that takes off on July 20th, 1944, apparently gets shot down over France, and then basically some members of the crew are dead, some members survive, and others fake their own death and reappear later. Ooh. It's called Missing Presumed Dead. Yeah, it has, it's, uh, yeah, I can't even tell you what it's about, just simply because it'll give everything away. Uh, one thing it's safe to say, I have never come across, in all my years of experience and digging in archives, I have never come across anything like this in nonfiction and history. It's um, it's made for Netflix. <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> it's a Netflix series. I mean, you know, you take you take Jack Ryan, you take Bloodline, you put them all together, and and you've got a war, and then add in a little bit of Bomber Command and World War II, and it's it honestly, it is a, a story that just keeps on giving. So hopefully, in 2022, we'll be sitting back talking about this. In which case, I'm going to stop this so I can ask you about it when the recording's finished. <laughs> right. Dave, thank you. The book is called One Day in August. It's out now. The new book on the Black Watch is Seven Days in Hell, which is which is fantastic. I've got it on the reading pile over there. Oh, great. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. And, well, thank uh, you for having me, guys. Appreciate it. And I'm probably going to drag you back to talk about a bit more Canadian military history because between, between Alex and Alina, it's it t- yeah. tend to be terribly Polish and terribly British and that's <laughs> no, if you want to be happy to any, any time. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, like I said, I've been having fun with uh, Woody. Uh, we just did one this morning, which will be out tomorrow, which is looking at the, uh, well, the cover of my seven days book um, has a infamous stage photo of a sniper. And so oh, we went into the, you know, the origins of it and it was great. It was a lot of fun. So yeah, but look, anytime, I mean, I'm here. No, we're not going anywhere. Uh, we're not going anywhere. Although I do have, I, I should, t- oh, God, I forgot to tell you, I do have a, um, a, a new documentary, which is coming out right now. It's tentatively slated for May on History Channel in the United States. And it's um, not a complete departure at all, but it's, it's a little different. Um, it's, um, I'm one of, the, uh, one of the investigator, lead investigator on um, the, the search for Flight 19. Which is, I'm not sure if you know this, but this was the flight of five torpedo bombers that took off from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, about three months after the end of the war and just disappeared. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's led to conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory about alien abduction, about vortexes and the Bermuda Triangle. But we actually, um, this is the largest investigation ever conducted. And we had Rob Kraft who was the, the, the expedition leader who found, you know, the, the Lexington and the Yorktown and, you know, the Japanese carriers from Midway. And he's done it incredible. He used uh, Petro Paul Allen's boat. And so um, 
before the pandemic, we were um, we were briefing him and he was heading out to see if he can find some of these aircraft. But you can imagine, you know, trying to find five torpedo bombers in the, you know, off the coast of Florida in the Atlantic is trying to find five needles in a massive amount of haystacks. So it's it, it's been a lot of fun. And now they it looks like this um, this one off is they sent it back and asked us to change the ending. So we don't conclude <laughs> what we conclude <laughs> simply because they want to go to series. No, so it it's, yeah. And the way we're saying is it's kind of like the, the, what is it? The hunt for, what is it? Oak Island, except we find shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way we're building it. It's yeah. It's like the curse of Oak Island, except we actually find stuff. And so uh, I've been doing the archive and the terrestrial search on land. And we have uh, an incredible diver, Mark Barnett, uh, Mike Barnett, I should say, who's been, uh, who's been diving off of the shores and then, you know, craft and the petrol with the latest, I mean, the most incredible search gear and UAVs and things like that you've ever seen. So that'll be out in um, right now. I think it's May. And it's narrated by Lawrence Fishburne. And so oh, I, I just can't wait to hear Larry say my name. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's going to be fun. So we're looking forward to that. I just saw the fine cut of it this week. And uh, the director, Joe Sousa, put, uh, just did a fantastic job putting this together. Because it's, you can imagine, right? It goes in all different directions. So to be able to tie it up. So that's that's kind of the next big thing that I'm, I'm doing. And then the book comes out. It was supposed to come out this year. But of course, pandemic has pushed the the pilot book back till 2022. Great. We'll drag you back for that because yeah. that sounds fantastic. David O'Keefe, thank you very much. Well, thank you so much. David O'Keefe's One Day in August is available now, and we're delighted to say that you can get it through our very own bookshop. If you head to bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or click the affiliate link in the description below, you can find David's book and all of our other recent guests' latest offerings as well. The good news is 10% of every purchase goes to supporting History Hack. And on that subject, now the Patreon bit. In 2020, when the boss ladies Alex and Alina started History Hack, the world was very strange. And unfortunately, it looks like 2021 is going to be equally strange. We would love it if you're able to support the podcast in any way. It will allow us to keep up the regularity of the pods and also the great guests that we've been able to bring you over the last year. We exist on Patreon as History Hack and also on Podbean, our podcast host's own platform called Patreon. The reward tiers are being updated at the moment, so there's going to be some fantastic options for you to choose from. So if you're able to support us, that would be fantastic. So we thank you very much, and until the next time, bye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.